We're talking this year, it's going by so fast for me. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Living the extraordinarily blessed life is the life God wants you to live. And last Sunday, I took the text, Colossians 1.27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I pointed out that the traditional interpretation of that and understanding of that verse, in my opinion, is wrong. Because most people read that and say, Christ in me is my hope of going to glory. That's not what it says there. It doesn't say it's my hope of glory. It says Christ in you is the hope of glory. And I pointed out that, that indeed it's easy to misunderstand this because Christ in you is your only hope of going to glory. That's absolutely correct, only that's not what that verse is saying. It says it in other places, but not there. What that verse is actually saying is that God has confidence in you and me. God has plans for this world. Revelation eleven fifteen: the great angel will come, place one foot on the land and the other on the sea, and declare that time is no more, and that the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God who lives in tomorrow before tomorrow occurs has already seen the end and knows that his kingdom will be established. Now, what is extraordinary is that he establishes his kingdom by working through us, believers. And that verse then viewed within that context, Christ in you is the hope of glory, means Christ in you, empowering you, is why Heaven can say with confidence and hope that the day is coming when the kingdom of God will be established in the earth. It's a statement about our mandate is what that really is saying. And that's really, really important in my mind and from my perspective for us to understand because I personally believe that the one thing the devil never wants you to ever do is wake up and find out who you really are. He doesn't want you to know how powerful you were meant to be. And one of the things that, that convinces us that we're not all that great, are we, are the frequent setbacks that we experience in our life. And if you've ever been involved in counseling or mentoring or leadership, if you've ever been a life coach, certainly if you've been a pastor or in ministry, you have seen over and over again to a point where it almost just just leaves you with your, your jaw hanging open and shaking your head. You've seen people that do things that pull themselves down. They self-destruct. Self-destructive behavior is the most common form of destruction that there is. We always talk about the enemy and the world being against us. Those are our big enemies, and there are three enemies, the world, the devil, and of course yourself, but of the three, you do more to hurt yourself than the enemy, Satan, or the world can ever do. And that might come as a surprise to some of you. You say, I thought the devil did this. We often blame the devil for stuff that really started in here. What the devil does is he is a master at figuring out what button he needs to push in you. Which one of these things that I'm going to talk about today exists in you that he can use as a weapon against you. These weapons of self-destruction that exist within us. And for some of us, it's all of the ones I'm going to show you up there in just a little while. For some, it's one or two or whatever. 
I'll spend most of my time today talking about the one major weapon of self-destruction that exists that nearly everybody in this room has been affected by to some degree or other. And then next Sunday, I'll finish out with the other seven. But the one biggie is the one that I'll talk about first. And when I talk about self-destructive behavior, it really exists. We blow up our marriages. We, we blow up our, our jobs, our businesses. We make decisions and, and we do things and we blow up our relationships, our ministry, and we look around and say, devil did that. Uh, the devil pushed the button, but it was you. And it was something inside that wasn't fixed yet that needed to be fixed. You got saved, you're born again, but you were inculcated into a world, indoctrinated into a fallen world. And in that world, you were programmed with beliefs and principles and ideologies that, that are supportive of a world that has fallen. They are a part of it. Uh, everybody has heard of the, the, therm- the laws of thermodynamics, and the second is that everything tends to entropy, right? Everything left to itself will, will rust, decay, fall apart. Everything in this world is in a constant state of dis- decay. You're in a a state of getting older and, and moving toward a time of transition in your life. And that's what aging is all about. Your car is getting older. You can take a house and shut it completely up. And that house will still begin to deteriorate. Over time, things wear out. The great uh, novelist, the Chibe from Nigeria, wrote a book by that title, Things Fall Apart. That's, that's what life is. Things fall apart in this world. And you were indoctrinated, inculcated, or socialized into a world that does exactly that. Then you get saved, and that's the work of a moment, as I've said so many times. But you carry with you all of that previous indoctrination. And, and even as a child of God, I see it over and over in church that we do things that hurt ourselves Speaking of hurting ourselves or hurting yourself, can I, can I tell you just a little joke? Because this is a heavy-duty subject here and just lighten the, the, the air just a moment. But a, a young blonde woman was distraught because she was afraid that her husband was having an affair. So she went to a gun shop and she bought a handgun. And the next day she followed her husband and sure enough he was meeting a beautiful woman in a bar and she walked into that bar livid and grabbed the gun out of her purse and put it to her own head and the husband began to beg and plead, please, please don't hurt yourself, don't shoot yourself, please, please don't do this. And she looked at him and snapped and said, you shut up, you're next. You don't have to be blonde to catch that one right there. Because brunettes do it too. Amen? I've made a statement several times that I think some of us have trouble accepting. And that is that the kingdom of God is about a way of thinking. The original sin of Adam and Eve was not eating the forbidden fruit. Can we put that lie to rest? It was not. You say, I thought they ate the forbidden fruit. They did. I thought that was sin. It was. It just wasn't the original sin. 
The original sin was that they chose to think differently than God thought. God had said in the day they eat of the fruit of the tree, they would die. And then Satan came along and introduced another way of thinking by saying that you won't surely die. God's keeping this tree to himself because he knows in the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. In other words, God's holding you back. From God's perspective, he was saying, I don't want you to do this because the consequences are so severe that it will hurt you and keep you from being all that you were meant to be. The enemy twisted that around and said, the reason he doesn't want you to do that is so he can hold you back. And before they ever ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, they decided and agreed to think like the enemy thought rather than like God. That was the original sin. Before it ever was fleshed out by action, there was a decision made in their minds to accept what the enemy said rather than God's. And when you come into the kingdom of God, that's where the struggle is. You've got to reprogram your thinking now to think like God thinks when all of your life you've been thinking a different way. Amen. And Pastor Tony was just up here talking about money, so let me just, uh, as it were, tag into that for a moment and not use it as my subject, but just mention tithing, for example. In this world, you were told 90% is less than 100%. And the reason that even after you get saved, believers still struggle sometimes to tithe is because they will not make the adjustment in their thinking to think like God thinks when God says, no, 90% is not less than 100%. 90% is more than 100% if you give me my part. Because then I will multiply what you have left and the windows of heaven will be opened over you and I will, in addition to that, curse the devourer for your sake. But people still hang on to the old information. 90% is less. You literally have to make a deliberate decision that you're not going to think the way you used to. The kingdom of God is about a way of thinking. Amen. And Adam and Eve chose to think like the enemy wanted them to think rather than God. And so with that in mind, I want to say, Father, I ask that you would help us to understand the heart and the thoughts of God and thank you for your word. Because it is in your word that we find the essence of who you are expressed. And the principles that give us life that are superior to this world. And I ask that you would help us today to receive your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Shout it out loud with me. Amen. You know what that means? It is so. It is so. So it is so that God is going to speak to you. We live in an overlap of kingdoms. We have been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. The kingdom of light. In one kingdom, you were subjected to rules and laws that governed that kingdom. In the next kingdom, there are also rules and laws. However, the kingdom of God and its laws are superior to those that exist in this world, the natural world. There are some things you can only understand by understanding them this way. For example, in the book of Genesis, chapter number one, the creative order. 
On the third day, God created vegetation, green things. On the fourth day, he created the sun. Wait a minute. Green things cannot exist without the sun. That's what we're told in science. Because vegetative matter must go through a process called photosynthesis, in which they take and absorb sunlight and it's converted into chlorophyll, and that becomes the food for the plant. And so many people during the years have argued in reading the creative order, that right there is proof that God didn't create the world because there's a scientific error in the layout of the constructive days of creation. Because God created green things before he created the sun, they would have all died. And on the surface of it, you could look and say, hmm, yeah, that's kind of mysterious. The only way that makes sense is when you realize that they were not without the sun. He is the light of the world and his kingdom is superior to the kingdom that you and I live in. They didn't need the sun. The laws of the kingdom of God transcend the laws of this earthly world. Another example, I've seen stacks of pancakes. I've seen stacks of firewood. Amen? I've even seen stacks of barbecue. I've never seen stacks of water. Yet the Bible said when they came to Jordan's River, the water stacked up. I'm not talking about in plastic bottles. Because the laws of a superior kingdom began to be applied. And therein is what happens in a miracle. The laws of another kingdom begin to be exerted. The laws of this world say that the surface area of the sole of a man's feet is not enough to support him in water. Yet the laws of that kingdom were such that Jesus said, come unto me, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on water and did not sink. You and I as children of God live in this world, but we're actually subject to the laws of a superior kingdom and a greater king. Amen. We have to learn to make the adjustment in our thinking for this transition to take place. There's so many things in the Bible like this. The laws of this kingdom, throw, throw three guys into a fiery furnace, they're going to be consumed. Laws of that kingdom, the ropes burn, but nothing else does. Amen. Laws of this kingdom, You've got a few loaves and a few fishes. What is that to get with so many? That's what Philip said. Laws of that kingdom in the master's hands. It can feed 5,000 men and not even count the women and the children. So tithing is not even a big issue. Once you understand that the adjustment is here, you come to recognize the validity of the laws of God. And this is the essence of what faith is. Faith is coming to believe what God said. Isaiah asked, who shall believe our, who has believed our report of the report of the Lord? And you have to choose to either believe the report of the world you live in or the report of the God that created you. The book of Romans is a fascinating book. Some of history's greatest revivals have occurred because of people reading the book of Romans. Did you know that? For example, did you know that because of his studies for a series of lectures from the book of Romans that he gave in 1515 through 1516, Martin Luther 
was so impacted by what he learned that he nailed the 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany the next year in 1517. That's 500 years ago. And that began the Reformation. Do you know what set his heart on fire? I've never counted the number of words in the book of Romans, but only six of them was all it took. The just shall live by faith. That one verse God calls to come alive in Martin Luther's heart, and that is what started the Reformation. Suppose God made all 780 some odd thousand words in the Bible suddenly come to life. What could happen? The book of Romans is extraordinary. That one passage birthed the Protestant Reformation and the breakaway from the traditional church that was living in darkness. And then a guy named John Wesley wandered into a church service on Aldersgate Street in London in 1738 one evening. And they were giving a lecture, not on the book of Romans, but on Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. They didn't even get into the good stuff. They just read his introduction. And John Wesley said his heart was strangely warmed. And he got saved and began the Wesleyan revival that shook the UK and the Americas. Amen. And much of Europe. In fact, historians credit the Wesleyan revival for as the reason that Great Britain did not have the same thing happen in it that happened in France during the French Revolution that nearly tore the country apart. They said one thing caused it to not occur, and that was the Wesleyan revival. And that began not from the book of Romans, but just from the introduction to the book of Romans. That's how incredible this book is. Of the epistles the apostle Paul wrote, for example, did you know that the book of Romans was the sixth in terms of sequential order that he wrote. But you notice in the New Testament that it is the first of the epistles following the book of Acts of the apostles. There are the four gospels in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church. And then the very first epistle is the book of Romans. You say, why is it at number six? Because the translators, when they translated it, looked at it and were so astonished by the profundity of the truth that it contains, that they said everything else in the Bible needs is understood if you can understand this book. And they made that the very first of Paul's epistles. Paul, in writing this book, because this is where I'll, I'll go to in just a moment, specifically targets what the Roman Christians believed regarding how they were brought into right standing with God. If you read the book of Romans, that's really what it's about. It's about justification. The epistle is actually written to both Gentile and Jewish Christians that have been converted from Judaism and the Gentiles from paganism. Both of those came from religious backgrounds that required sacrifices to justify the religious adherent. And Paul writes the book to correct the error in their thinking that salvation can ever be earned by what we do and makes the point emphatic over and over and over again that salvation is the free gift of God and it's what Christ did for us, not what we have done for God. Amen. That makes the difference. And he tells the early believers that the work of the atonement was entirely done by Christ. In Christ alone, Christ and nothing else 
Christ plus nothing else causes your salvation. Because Paul is challenging them to think differently, it also says a great deal about faith. Faith is what you believe, isn't it? Now let's talk about faith. What is faith? Well, faith is what I believe. This is, uh, I believe that I'm going to be healed, so that's faith. Now this is really very important. Faith is what you choose to think about God or choose to embrace and think of as truth. This is extremely important because, again, what I'm pointing out is that faith is actually a way of thinking. It's not emotion. It's not even always based on verifiable fact. Many times it contradicts what appears to be scientific evidence. The doctor says you have three months left to live, and then God heals you, and the doctor is absolutely astonished and mystified like we have had happen in this church. I'm not just talking hypothetically. I'm talking about real situations. Amen. Faith, amen, is what you choose to believe. That is to say, again, it's not something that God hammered into you. It was a choice on your part. This is why even salvation is left up to the prerogative of the individual, and he has to make a decision about what he will believe regarding Christ. Choose you this day whom you will serve. It's your decision. Today is the day of salvation, and now is the accepted time. As you dig into the book of Romans, though justification is the obvious message, you quickly begin to see that what Paul is trying to do in the book of Romans is literally reprogram the thinking of both Jewish believers and believers that were formerly pagan. In chapter 1, he tells us how mankind in the world fell into the trap of the evil one. He says they did so when they became futile in their thoughts. Wow, their thoughts, thinking, caused them to be lost? Yeah, that's what I just said. Thinking is what caused Adam and Eve to be lost when they chose to think other than the way God thought. He goes on to say in verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a debased mind. They made a decision. We don't want to think like God. And God said, okay, I'll let you experience the consequences of the way you want to think. Chapter 2, Paul again establishes this theme and points out the problem is one that had its beginning in the way they chose to think. For he speaks in verse 15 that their thoughts, he says, are accusing or else excusing them. Whoa, your thoughts, what you think matters? Yeah, Chapter 3, Paul declares that even if we choose to believe thoughts that contradict those of God, he quickly points out that he must remind them that God's way of thinking is still the only and correct way. You can choose to believe the sun's going to come up in the west tomorrow, but it doesn't mean it's going to. God's word is superior, and he says in verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Chapter 4, Paul goes on to state that our thoughts and what we choose to believe is how unrighteousness begins in us just as the wrong thoughts is how sin began in man. Listen to this. Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Makes perfect sense. Adam and Eve chose to believe other than what God was saying and that was sin. Abraham chooses to believe what God is saying. That's righteousness. He goes on to take time in these passages to even address the Jewish people 
who would have had a problem with that because their teaching was that it was circumcision that brought Abraham into right standing with God. But Paul takes the time to go down through that and point out that it was counted to Abraham as righteousness when he believed God before he was ever circumcised. So he's pointing out that circumcision was the result of his faith. It's not what caused his faith. What caused his faith was a decision to believe as God believed. And then you come to chapter 5. I'm just giving you a quick synoptic overview. Chapter 5 is the key and pivotal chapter in my opinion. For here it is where God's amazing grace suddenly causes everything to turn to our favor. In chapter 5, Paul explains that Christ came to suffer in our place, that since we chose to believe like the enemy and then experience the consequences of that poor decision, Christ came and took upon us our sin and paid the price. And then he goes on to say and explain that if we will now choose to believe what God has done through Christ and accept and understand and believe the reasons why, we will now have peace through God in Christ as a result of the sacrifice Jesus made. In chapter 6, Paul even instructs us as believers to now think of ourselves as dead to sin and the power of sin and to think of ourselves as alive to God through Christ Jesus. In every one of these chapters, he's talking about what are you thinking? What are your thoughts? And most people in Christian churches think all I have to do is just get saved and that takes care of whatever I needed to take care of. Got that done. Let's check that one off the list. Now what's number two? And they don't realize that when you get saved, that what God's really doing is initiating a process in you where he can, he can correct the input of the world's thinking that has led to the problems that you've experienced in your life. Chapter 7, Paul then goes on to point this out. Because even as a believer, he says, he still struggles. It's in chapter 7, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? What I want to do, I don't. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. Pointing out that even after salvation, he's still dealing with the programming of a past life. And then in chapter 8, oh, thank God for chapter 8. He begins to tell us how to overcome the struggle. And he identifies eight common weapons that exist within us, that the enemy uses to destroy our lives. And then after telling us in chapter 8 how to deal with those in chapter 9, he establishes that it was when Abraham and Sarah chose to change their thinking and to believe what God had said that they became the children of God. And in similar fashion, when you choose to stop thinking like the world, that you too, and you too begin to think like God, that it establishes Christ in your heart. You become like your spiritual father, your heavenly father. Abraham thus established that the way back to God was to believe the right things. It was counted to him as righteousness. In chapter 10, the apostle points out that we too must believe differently than the world would have us to believe. And we must believe all that God has said to be saved. In verse 17, he gives us the key now to changing our thinking. That faith comes by hearing and that by a word of God, the word of God. 
What that literally means is when you come into the kingdom of God, what matters next is are you getting the word? Because I know some folk, all they need to do is go to church, clap their hands, have a good time, listen to the music, they're ready to go. That's not what it's about. Being in worship prepares you to receive what God is about to impart into your life. It prepares your heart to receive spiritual DNA. The impartation of heavenly wisdom. You move on to chapter 11. Paul explains that it was the refusal of Israel to continue to believe as their father Abraham had. When he chose to believe God, it was counted as righteousness. But then Israel came along later and said, we're not going to believe like Abraham. And that resulted in their alienation from God. And the olive tree, which is Christ, the natural branch, which is Israel, was cut out. But that provided, Paul goes on to explain to Gentile believers in Rome who were pagans, that it was Israel's rejection of God that enabled you as a wild olive branch to be grafted in in their place. And you now have the opportunity Israel rejected. Somebody that's here today ought to just say, amen, amen. But still, the ultimate and underlying theme in all of this, what Paul is really communicating, is found in chapter 12 and verse 2, when he says, we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That when you come into the church and you begin to believe, that's faith, and you begin to accept God's way of thinking in place of the world's way of thinking, that is faith. That then you begin to see the outgrowth of that in your life, and God's blessing and favor on your life is what proves that God meant for you to be blessed from the get-go. Amen. You need to hear what I'm saying because this is really, really important. And so it goes on through the rest of the chapters. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16. The book of Romans is all about, are you willing to confront the way you're thinking? That's what Paul is writing to the, the Christians in Rome, both pagan who have been converted and Jewish people who have also been converted. And he wants to know, are you going to hold on to your old way of thinking are you going to let it go to embrace the principles of a kingdom superior to this earthly one? Amen. I contend that one reason so many people do not see the demonstration of the supernatural in their life, they're fully saved. I'm not questioning their conversion. Their lives are hidden with Christ in God under the blood. They're on their way to heaven. But the problem is they're still indoctrinated, inculcated into a fallen world. And it is for this reason that if you've ever been involved in counseling or mentoring or being a life coach, or certainly if you've been involved in pastoring, you have seen it over and over and over again, the huge numbers of people that do things that unravel their own lives, self-destructive behavior. And this is what Paul was speaking about in Romans 7 that I mentioned earlier when he says in Verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not do, that's what I practice. 
And that is exactly where so many believers live their lives. Because we do good for a while, and we have this closet that we put all this stuff in, and most of us do not want to address issues in our lives. We don't want to get to the root of it. It's too painful. We don't want to fix it. We want to pretend it isn't there, and then in pretending it isn't there, we think that it's going to go away. I'm talking about this very real phenomenon where every one of us have a closet with stuff boarded up, and we have weaknesses on the inside and issues we deal with, and we throw it all in there and slam the door shut and put a padlock on it and think, got that taken care of, man. Amen. And then six months later, sprung, spring, the door flies off because all of that stuff on the inside was building up and waiting to get out. And we do something that hurts our marriage or we hurt our job or our finances. You know people like what I'm talking about. Why is it there are some people that if they're making $25,000 a year, they will always spend 20% more. Then they get a raise to 50, they're going to still spend 20% more. Get a raise to 100, they're going to still spend 20% more. 200, still spend 20% more. Because they have something within them that makes them self-destruct. And I've seen it in marriage after marriage, and relationship after relationship, family after family. And I want to ask you, do you ever feel like Paul when he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I've given you eight things that, that you will find in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, a phenomenal chapter. I shared with you not long ago that in a survey among the top religious scholars and leaders in the world, they asked them if you couldn't take the whole Bible, but you were to spend the rest of your life on a desert island and could only take one chapter, which one would it be? Do you know that nearly all of them said the same thing? They said Romans chapter 8. You know why? Because it identifies the eight things we all struggle with. Some maybe struggle with one more than others, but trust me, you're in there, and that, these eight things that I'll mention, it, it's, it's going it's to affect you. It, it will touch you, and maybe you deal with all of them, but here they are. Shame, and again, shame is not guilt. I'll explain in a moment or sorrow over something you've done. Self-destructive thoughts is another. I'll never be able to do this. I'll never be able to succeed. I'll never build that business. And, and we talk ourselves out of our own success. Compulsions, you know what that is. Paul said he struggled with that. Thing I want to do, I don't do. Thing I don't want to do is what I do. It's whenever you know you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. And later you say, I don't know what got into me. I knew better. Compulsions, fear is number four. Despair, which is really depression. Resentment, which is unforgiveness. Pride, that's arrogance. And finally, low self-esteem. Those eight things are the common things the enemy discerns within us, and he spends years studying every one of us to know which one we are most susceptible to the influence of. And that's the one he chooses, a weapon of self-destruction. The Apostle Paul discusses the effect of all of these things and, and says that if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And, and I, want, I want you to see this 
In the very first verse I read, verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. And this gets back to the ability to be self-diagnostic, self-diagnose. Most of us don't understand. You know what we do? We blame our parents. We blame our boss. We blame our kids. We blame our husband. We blame our wife. We blame everybody for the mess we're in. Boy, is it getting quiet in here right now. Don't worry. I know where I'm at. I got the needle so deep in the vein right now. You're going, (laughs) amen. (laughs) Paul said, I don't know why I'm doing this. And that it is one of the most amazing things about the, 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 the very issues that I'm talking about. One of the most astonishing things is we never can figure ourselves out. Very few of us ever can. Very few of us. Now your wife got you figured out. And she tries to tell you, you get, you get mad. Husband's got you figured out. We can figure out our neighbor. We see him a mile away. You're looking across the church at somebody right now. You know exactly what their problem is. But they can't figure it out. And they're looking at you thinking the same thing. What's with that guy? He can't figure out what... We don't want to spend the energy trying to figure these things out. Some people blame the church, blame religion, blame God. The answer, as I said before, when Paul asked, who will deliver me from this body of death is not a person, or rather not a thing, it is a person. It's not a thing. People want to go to the doctor and get a pill to fix their depression. They they want to go to counseling, they, they want to go see Dr. Field, they want to attend a Tony Robbins seminar, they want to watch Oprah, you know. Look, it's not a thing that's going to fix you, it's a who that's going to fix you. And Paul is pointing them back to Christ, that the way to deal with these issues is in Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 25. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. How does God work to deliver us from self-destructive behavior? One answer. The Word. Say it. The Word. Everything God does, He does through the Word does with the word. That's why the psalmist said, you've exalted your word above all of your name. Everything God does, he does through his word, from creating the world to creating you. Amen. It's the word of God. This is why the eighth chapter of Romans is so powerful. Because it contains the keys to resolving the dilemmas that we face in Romans chapter 7. You look at these things, these problems that I'll be be talking about, and you will discover that they are mental habits that developed in us in our fallen life. And that what Christ is trying to help you do is correct those. The first is to be free from shame. Shame is different than guilt or sorrow. Paul talked in Corinthians about godly sorrow. Sorry I did this. Sorry that I blew it. Sorry that I messed up. There's not a person here that hasn't felt sorrow, but this is where shame differs from sorrow. Sorrow is what you've done. Shame is who you are. 
And shame is this need that you have on the inside to hide your identity and mask it and cover it up with either achievements or just being anonymous. And people are driven on the inside to either be completely anonymous or to be so successful sometimes. And a lot of it comes from this place that I'm talking about. I preached this in the first service, just so you'll know I'm preaching the same thing I preached in the first service. If you were here, you can get the CD. I'm not talking in reference to anyone in particular, so please understand. How do you get free from shame? This is the question. You get free from shame by being thankful every day for what Jesus did for you in freeing you from sin. Now wait, it's going to get good. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I am free from my past. Somebody shout hallelujah. I'm free. I need somebody to say that. In the book that I wrote, Soul Detox, every time I sign it, I always sign it the same way. Free at last. Free at last. Because this book right here is what sets you free on the inside. Yes, you're free. You're on your way to heaven. But the thinking still can make your life one of misery. You can still do things that, that destruct your, uh, and cause your own life to fall apart. Listen to what Paul says. Verse number two, he says, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. You see, in the old life, you could not fix anything because you only had your willpower. But when you come into the kingdom of God, you get the power of the Holy Spirit. The mighty God lives inside of you. Oh, that ought to make somebody thankful right there. Amen. You have the Spirit inside of you to help you now. Unfortunately, many believers have not yet learned how to tap into that power and are still struggling to do the right things by sheer power of their will alone. Verse 3 says, the law of Moses was unable to save us. This is a reality that is very, very important. The law cannot save you. Not even the law of God. You may from time to time wonder why, and I say this throughout the year, not just in an election year, stop looking to the governments of men to save you. All they do is pass laws. Not even the law of God can, can save you. The law of Moses couldn't save us. If the law of Moses couldn't save us, how do you think the law of governments can save you? You're overlooking how they function. The governments function on the pain principle. None of us want anarchy. And so you know what we do? We have laws in place that if people get out of their lane and step into ours, steal from us, or you steal from someone else, do these things that are not right, you know what we do? We put penalties in place and we make the penalties severe enough that hopefully that person will say, gee, I don't want to do that. But what you need to understand is just because they don't do it doesn't change one thing in their hearts. 
Amen. The law of Moses could not change the hearts of the people. I've seen believers who are wonderfully saved and on their way to heaven and have a lot of self-discipline and they never do anything, never mess up, but their heart, oh boy, they got a tongue like a barbed wire fence. I one time knew a pastor that pastored in this state, Orange, Texas, and he was a great preacher, preached count meetings, and he one time preached a count meeting and his sermon was on gossip. And when he finished, a dear sister he had known for years came forward and said, Brother Gamblin, I want you to pray for me that God will help put my tongue on the altar. (laughs) And he said, Sister, there's not an altar big enough in this campground to put your tongue on. (laughs) He told her that. (laughs) Was (laughs) Was she saved? Yes. But it doesn't change your heart just because there are laws in place that you're trying to abide by. The power of God inside of you can change your heart. That's what the Bible is saying. And how do you do that? You get the word of God and it changes everything. It will change your life. And that's why I keep telling you, you can't get too much of the word. You can get too little. But you can't get enough. Shame was the big one for me. And I bet it is for most of you too. That's why I'm spending more time on this one. Do you know they say, I remember these studies from studying child psychology and and Piaget and Erickson and some of the other pioneers and researchers in this field. But, you know, when a child is small, what happens to that child, they have not yet developed cognitive reasoning to the level that they can understand this is not my fault. And so when somebody treats a child bad, you know what happens? They internalize it. Everything is always egocentric when you're a small child. You don't even really begin to develop cognitive logic until you're six or seven years of age. Did you know that? I shared that with my daughter one time, Scotland, who's now a young lady about to go off to college as their oldest child. And, um, and my daughter, Shell, she was having some challenges helping Scotland understand some things when she was little, only about four years of age. And I remember it vividly. There was a Cajun restaurant down on Richmond we used to go to and eat gumbo once in a while. And, and we went there and Shelly was sitting there in Scotland, had gone to the restroom or something with, with Nana, my wife. And, um, and so Shell's telling me, Dad, how do I work with this? And I said, first of all, baby, take the pressure off. And understand that Scotland has not yet developed cognitively to the point that she can reason or understand what you're trying to say. You have to allow this to develop over time. And one of the, 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 the experiments they did in, in the development, de- developmental stages of, of psychology is, is one called conservation. Some of you studied it. And I said, what's this? And I told her, I, I said, Would you take a candy bar, you cut it into four pieces, five pieces, and you put one that's whole right there, and you put this other one, same kind of candy bar, let's say a payday candy bar, Mars, Snicker bar, or something. Cut it into five pieces and get one that's whole and set it in front of Scotland. And when she comes back, ask her which one she wants, and I'm going to tell you with 100% certainty which one that will be. It's going to be the one that's cut into five pieces because they think it's more. It's called conservation. They can't undo the action you just did. They can't, 
they can't walk backward through the process and see it was one candy bar saying like the other one until you cut it up. And so when Scotland came back, we had a couple of candy bars. I did that thing. And Scotland said, I'll take that one right there, Papa, the one with five pieces. I looked at my daughter and I said, see what I mean? When you're young like that, you can't think through the cognitive processes. And many of us, that's where all of this actually began in our lives. It is. I know it was with me. It was the breakup of my parents' home when I was only four and all of the things that I went through after that. If I had been older, I would have said, you're not treating me right. But that's not what I said because I took it personal from an egocentric perspective. And you know what I said? I said what every child does. I've watched this when parents break up and divorces come. I've watched little children look up and say, Daddy, I'll be good. Don't leave Mommy. And I want to say, it's not the child's fault. Help me out, because I'm really getting down to where some of us live right now. And you grow up with this, and here's what's tragic. Very few people, when they do develop cognitive reasoning ability, don't go back to analytically process what they accepted when they were younger. And so all the bad stuff, where you needed acceptance and it wasn't there, And you didn't realize it was because somebody else had a problem. You think it's you that's inferior. You grow up and you get older and you still have this feeling on the inside like, it's me. I'm not good. I'm not desirable. And all of it comes down from the way we were made. In John 4, Jesus met the woman at the well. And after the discussion, he goes on to say, the father is seeking true worshipers to worship him, say it with me, in spirit and in truth. Did you get that? The Father is seeking. As complete as God is, God seeks acceptance. And if he does, you better know you are too. And if you receive rejection instead, And people hold you at a distance. You grow up your whole life feeling shame. And how do you get over shame? I wish I had another hour on just this. You get over shame by doing what Paul says. Be thankful every day for what Jesus did for you in freeing you from sin. There is now no condemnation. I need somebody to say it. No condemnation. Say it again. No condemnation. No condemnation. You belong to Jesus Christ. It's over. The blood washed the need away. And for me, what fixed it is Ephesians 1 and 6. Because I grew up a mess. And one day I found Ephesians 1 and 6. Giving praise to the glory of his grace. Whereby we are accepted in the beloved. Did you hear that? I am accepted. I've been trying to be accepted, but I am accepted. You may never accept me, but he accepted me, and his vote matters more than yours. 
Hello, somebody may turn you down. Somebody may do you wrong. Somebody may wound you and betray you. But the one whose vote counts the most said, I love you. I accept you. You're my child. I've washed it away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Somebody ought to get happy right now. Woo. Free at last. Free at last. Free on the inside where it really matters. 